Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerrero. This is part two of my D-Day lecture. This is 6 June, excuse me, uh, 2023. We're going to get right back into the discussion of sphingolipids and the myocardial infarction paper, which we were ending um, just this morning. Now it's the afternoon. The conclusion of that paper I was covering was that adipose-derived stem cell exosomes will actually reduce cardiac damage after a complete myocardial infarction via a mechanism that is regulated by sphingosine 1-phosphate activating sphingosine kinase 1 through the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor 1. And what that does cellularly is it's, it causes a polarity change between macrophages of M1 to M2, which means a decrease in inflammation. Okay, This was the entire uh, synopsis. Now, keep that in mind. Let's go to another discussion here. Paper published way back in 2006 was also looking at sphingosine 1-phosphate. And noting that it worked through G protein couple receptors, as we've been discovering, and you know that there are three of them, at least in mammalian systems that have been studied in that detail. And it's been known that through that G protein couple receptor, calcium and cyclic AMP are ultimately involved. Now, in adipocytes, sphingosine 1-phosphate links to phospholipase C pertussis toxic sensitive G protein couple receptors. Okay. And it's known because, because the pertussis toxin sensitive G protein couple receptors have been um, highly examined for regulation. That that kind of receptor at the concentration of sphingosine 1-phosphate that has been used in this particular study directly is associated with the induction of cyclic AMP production via adenylate cyclase. Okay. So what else they found was that sphingocele phosphorylcholine can also function the same way. Now, glycerolipids and sphingolipids have some similarities in terms of polar head groups. That's the case here with sphingomyelin having a choline polar head group. I'll leave it at that because I will tell you more about sphingolipid metabolism um, very soon in this lecture. Okay. Important point is that sphingosine 1-phosphate working through its own receptor, um, in this case the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor 1, is linked to calcium-mediated adenylate cyclase cyclic AMP signaling. Okay. Now, what it does in the adipose, different than from the cardiac muscle, different from the exosome study, this again is giving you the conditional understanding of how you cannot examine one metabolite, like sphingosine 1-phosphate, and attribute to it a certain set of functions that will play the same role or will be meted out in the same way in all cell types, because that is not the case.
Okay. So in this paper, the reason I'm telling you about it, stringosine 1-phosphate selective receptors that work through adenylate cyclase and cyclic AMP pathways, what happens when that occurs in the adipose is you get an increase in hormone-sensitive lipase, so more fatty acid is generated, which could be lipotoxic. This involves then a decrease in insulin-dependent leptin production. Now, this is a rat study, but you understand that. So a lot of free fatty acid in the adipose in the rat study is going to decrease insulin's effect on synthesis, on expression as the transcriptional regulation of leptin, then this translation, and then, of course, leptin secretion in the sera, ultimately making it where uh, to the hypothalamus, where it functions to control appetite. Okay? So, that's the second component I want you to understand. Now, move on. Many years later, 2022, another paper was published. This one's in the journal Nutrients. It's talking about a different clinical feature. So we've been talking about adipose and macrophage polarity. We've been talking about inflammation of the adipose. Then we talked about myocardial infarction and the exosomal-mediated uh, via Schwingo seen one phosphate working through one of its receptors to enhance the recovery after a myocardial infarction from exosomal translocation from the adipose to the myocardium. Now we're talking about abdominal aortic aneurysms. Now, those are common in the obese, just like cardiovascular disease and cancer are. So here's yet another clinical sequelae to obesity. Abdominal aortic aneurysm, that's triple A. What is it? It's a dilation of the vessel equal to or exceeding a specific numerical value in humans. That's three centimeter. It has a very long preclinical period that is prodromal where there are no symptoms. So it totally goes undiagnosed. But when it finally presents itself, it can lead directly to death. And that's because the vessel itself ruptures. So a lot of people have been interested in studying this because it's not always linked to obesity, but it is linked to obesity often enough that there could be a connection. So what is known is that abdominal aortic aneurysms have to do with hyperinflammatory responses. And the hyperinflammation is linked to the excess adipose, especially where this is occurring is at the perivascular region of the adipose. Because what occurs there is the synthesis of a host of adipocytokines. And those adipocytokines seem to play a role directly in the formation of that aneurysm, of that dilation, okay? So, in the adipose tissue, the pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines that are described are, of course, tumor necrosis factor alpha, that's one, but also proteins like resistin and even leptin are pro-inflammatory because they are involved in 
M1 macrophage polarity. Okay. It's not what they're doing. It's not what leptin's doing in the central nervous system, right, at all. But now we're back again in the adipose. <clears throat> and it turns out leptin, TNF, alpha, and resistin seem to be linked to the aneurysms. Whereas the adipokine known as adiponectin, when it's secreted from adipose tissue, seems to limit the aneurysm response. Now, what happens in obesity, which has been well described, is that you get leptin resistance. Just like with insulin resistance, you can have a lot of leptin circulating, a lot of leptin making it to the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus where it has receptors. But no matter, the, the signal is not transduced. And that's because the leptin receptors are no longer functioning, much similar to insulin receptors. And again, this is a dyslipidemic response. Okay. Now, because of this association between leptin and adiponectin, what might you think is occurring with obesity? Well, with obesity, the production of adiponectin decreases. And this is linked to inflammation. And the inflammation associated with infiltrating macrophage into the adipose. And one of the key factors of that infiltration, you know, is the production of pro-inflammatory eicosanoids and cytokines. But also, I've said many times, certain matrix metalloproteases. And what are they doing? They cause a degradation of the extracellular matrix, which is you know pretty easy to figure out because that's how they're named. And though that that destruction of the extracellular matrix is indeed a very important pathocellular factor in the formation of an aneurysm. Now, besides obesity, gross obesity, which is a direct uh, basically a measure of the amount of triacylglycerol and the ever-expanding adipocytes. There's a, there are also other lipids. And I said this three lectures ago, maybe, as I recall. And I told you there were glycerolipids and sphingolipids. So we're back to sphingolipids, right? So there's going to be a, not only an altered quantity of sphingolipid in the grossly obese adipose, there's also going to be an alteration of stringolipid metabolism. In fact, <clears throat> it's well known that stringolipid metabolism alteration in the obese tends to enhance the inflammatory response. And with that inflammatory response, a degeneration of the cellular mass, not to apoptosis, but to necrotosis which can then enhance the inflammatory response even further, okay? So, sphingosine 1-phosphate in the adipose, like it is described in most tissues, is actually anti-inflammatory. But remember, it's also pro-proliferative. It enhances cell division, which could be the other side of a pathological response. Now, what is pro-inflammatory in the adipose and in many other tissues, such as the liver, is ceramide. So you have to know something about now metabolism, and I'm going to tell you how you uh, what sphingolipid metabolism looks like right away here. So ceramide is directly linked 
to inflammation and to decrease in the concentration of adiponectin, which seems to be protective against obese-associated abdominal aortic aneurysm. Now, along with that decrease in the concentration of adiponectin is caused by ceramide, which is another sphingolipid, is you get an increase in TNF-alpha and that matrix metalloprotease, in this case, number nine, which is also linked to increases in reactive oxygen, which of course will contribute to programmed cell death, specifically of the vascular smooth muscle cells. All right, so now you see where it's come together, okay? Now, sphingolipid metabolism, real quickly. The, uh, the rate-limiting enzyme starts off with serine, L-serine, and pulmonary-CoA. So that enzyme, SPT, is the first reaction generating 3-ketoschwinganine, which is then reduced to schwinganine. Then there's an enzyme called ceramide synthase, which produces dihydroceramide. And then there's a desaturase, which puts a trans-double bond in what was the palmitic acid moiety that built the backbone of the stringonine backbone. That ceramide synthase has to do with adding an amide-linked fatty acid, a various level of unsaturation and chain lines, which give the ceramides their unique molecular species, all of which act differently. Don't you know? Now, once you generate ceramide, that amide-linked sphingolipid, um, it can be used to make sphingomyelin, and the answer for that is sphingomyelin synthase. That's one way to get there, and that's using phosphorylcholine coming from either the trimethylation pathway or from a phospholipase-mediated removal of phosphorylcholine from membrane phosphatidylcholine. Now, we already mentioned to you many times that sphingomyelin could be degraded by sphingomyelinase. There's an acidic form and a neutral form. There's actually three different forms of sphingomyelinases. Some of them are found in the plasma membrane. Sphingomyelinase will generate ceramide. Now, again, ceramide then can be broken down by a ceraminidase to produce sphingosine. Sphingosine kinase will make. One of the products, <laughs> sphingosine 1-phosphate. So you see how ceramide and sphingosine 1-phosphate are just two enzymatic steps away from each other. Now, that's also fairly reversible. Sphingosine 1-phosphate can be dephosphorylated sphingosine, and sphingosine can be used to be the substrate, adding back that fatty acid to the nitrogen atom via ceramide synthase. Okay, A different isoform of that enzyme, though. Also, ceramide, remember, can be phosphorylated via the enzyme ceramide kinase. And ultimately, also, sphingosine 1-phosphate um, does have a terminal uh, pathway, and that's the sphingosine 1-phosphate um, lyase, and that will produce hexadecanal, the aldehyde, and, of course, the other product is going to be phosphonoethanolamine. Now you have the pathway. Now, Back to discussing aneurysms. One of the potential risk factors for aneurysms is obesity. Full stop. Obesity, remember, is excessive amount of certain 
visceral body fat. When that is the case, there is an increase in perivascular adipose tissue. Now, perivascular adipose tissue, or PVAT, is that adipose which surrounds the blood vessel. So that PVAT also increases in the obese. Okay. So the adipocytes of people that, that are obese have high levels of triacylglycerol, the neutral lipid, as I mentioned. That's how uh, adipocytes expand or grow. They expand by uh, uh, increasing the concentration of triacylglycerol in the oil droplets, right? Uh, 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 preparing the mechanism of depot fat deposition, right? Yes. But not only triacylglycerol, you also get the sphingolipids. And you also get glycerophospholipids in the adipose, of course, being trafficked in there by lipoproteins and, and even chylomicron at the get-go. So sphingolipids, remember, we just went through the pathway, are highly complex in their interconversions and in their utilization in multiple cellular um, beds throughout the body. Sphingolipid metabolism is really important in the central nervous system, making sphingomyelin, right? But also making the galactosphingolipids and the sulfocerebrosides, multiple forms of sphingolipids in the central nervous system that are important for, yeah, exonal growth and also for synaptic neural transmission. So sphingolipids have a tremendously uh, uh, expansive uh, literature on all aspects of normal physiology in humans and pathophysiology, as you might guess, including some inborn errors of metabolism, storage diseases, as you know. So because of that, all these sphingolipids have to be particularly described in any given pathophenotype because we have to know what sphingolipids are there if, they're the, if there are receptors for the sphingolipids, and what is the signaling downstream from the binding to the receptor to be able to pull out the specificity of pathogenic versus non-pathogenic states vis-a-vis relative concentrations of all the sphingolipids. That's how it became evident that in general, again, now this is a concept this is a generalization of observations. That doesn't mean it's always correct. It just means what I said. It's a concept. Concept one, ceramide promotes apoptosis. It also promotes growth arrest and, as we've said, inflammatory responses. Whereas sphingosine 1-phosphate is a mitogen, so it can be associated with oncogenesis, which of course is a pathophysiological state. It's also involved in activating and proliferating angiogenesis, which further can be a, um, a marker for oncogenesis. But at the same time, sphingosine-1-phosphate working through certain of its receptors will inhibit programmed cell death, particularly apoptosis, the canonical type, come from mitochondrial membrane. And also, sphingosine-1-phosphate, as we said in the last couple of papers, seems to negatively regulate inflammation, kicks down inflammation. One of the ways is going from M1 to M2 in terms of macrophage polarity. It also has similar roles in T-cells, I should say. Now, 
all of these cellular responses that are uh, attributed to sphingolipids obviously require an entire system of enzymes that interrelate the physiological response to the relative concentration event of that given class of sphingolipid. And the enzymes we've already talked about, phosphatases, kinases, and also further upstream lipases, and also acyltransferases, right? All those wonderful enzymatic pathways we talk about in lipid uh, biochemistry, all of those are going to play a role in sphingolipid metabolism, of course. I should say, si certo, right? Now, ceramide seems to be a very potent inducer of certain species of reactive oxygen. And this is found throughout mammalian um, genera and particularly in humans. So there are many researchers that are interested in what are the relative levels. And we talked about the rheostat last lecture. Relative levels of sphingosine 1-phosphate and multiple forms of ceramide or ceramide 1-phosphate, right? Because that rheostat, that, that balance of that ratio seems to play a major role. Once again, you will understand that that ratio of sphingosine 1-phosphate to various molecular forms of ceramide seem to be involved in this aneurysm, okay? This, this AAA, this aneurysm that is associated with sudden death in the obese. And of course, that's going to be linked to abdominal aorta inflammatory systems. Okay. So that's where the sphingolipid metabolism plays a role. Now, S1P, sphingosine 1-phosphate, triggers inflammation depending on which receptor it works through. Yeah. <laughs> Told you that the generalization isn't always the case. That's what I always have to remind all of my students and all of uh, people that I consult with is that everything is an event ontology and you cannot take one substance because you should never look at a substance. You should look at the event. That is, how much of the substance is there over time and how is it interconverted? Okay, which means you have to include all the pathways, which means you have to measure everything, right? You cannot make suppositions. So I told you about three sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors. There are actually, in humans, five different types of receptors. They're all called S1PRs. So then after that, there's the numbers one through five. Of course, we just told you in 2006, they delineated that these are all GPCRs, G-particle receptors. So the question isn't just how much phingosine 1-phosphate versus ceramide is there on the rheostat in the ratio, but also what's the differential expression of all those receptors, okay? And are those, are those receptors abundant enough to be able to carry out a certain signaling transduction cascade vis-a-vis -vis from relative concentrations of phingosine 1-phosphate? And these would include pro-inflammation and pathological states, as well as what I told you, sphingosine 1-phosphate is often um, linked to, which is carcinogenesis and various types of very, very uh, tightly controlled immunological modulation. Now, the main sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor in the vascular system is receptor 2. 
but receptor 1 and 3 are found in endothelial cells and in vascular smooth muscle, but in much smaller molar concentration. Remember, these are receptors in the membrane. Now, that, that unique level of expression of the receptors for shingosine 1-phosphate therefore play the significant role in the rheostat of either promoting or preventing inflammatory infiltration of macrophages, only one example, and that works through the activation of cyclooxygenase 2 transcription, which of course, once it's that protein is transcribed and translated, it will generate amongst many of the eicosanoids prostacyclin 2. Now that prostacyclin 2 is actually known as PGI2. But not only PGI2, but prostaglandin E2. Because remember, that's another eicosanoid from a different mechanism and a different set of enzymes subsequent to the initial cyclooxygenase pathway, or reaction, I should say, because the pathway includes all those enzymes. Now, inflammation is indeed the basis for this aortic aneurysm. And sphingosine-1-phosphate and the receptors are definitely involved in inflammation, controlling it in blood vessels, as I just told you. And because of that, you know that sphingosine-1-phosphate is going to be involved somewhere in either the inhibition of pathogenesis of the aneurysm or promotion of it. Because we have to talk about the receptors, because the receptors can act in multivalent domain. Okay. Now, the abdominal aortic aneurysm, where you have sphingosine-1-phosphate receptor 1, when it's absent, you lose control over that aorta vascular system. Okay? So, sphingosine-1-phosphate working through sphingosine-1-phosphate receptor 2, when both are present, will induce COX-2 expression and synthesize prostacyclin. Prostacyclin is anti-inflammatory. It's also vasodilatory. Indeed, it relaxes vascular smooth muscle cells, which is the definition. So not just nitric oxide plays that role. Prostacyclin plays that role. Okay? Many of the other prostaglandins are vasoconstrictive, by the way. <laughs> now, the reduced expression of an anti-inflammatory sphingosine-1-phosphate receptor 2 okay, in the abdominal aortic aneurysm, vascular smooth muscle cell, would then be associated with a decrease in prostacyclin synthesis. And that could lead to an inflammatory reaction because all the other prostaglandins Many of the others, shouldn't say all, many of the other are actually pro-inflammatory, right? Of course, they're acting as paracrine hormones to stimulate inflammation. Now, finally, comes up to sphingosine-1-phosphate receptor 3. I better check my time. Ooh, it's getting close. Okay, glad I checked. As it turns out, sphingosine-1-phosphate receptor 3 
which vincosine-1-phosphate binds to it, will promote inflammation. It does so by inducing COX-2 expression again, but here, the final set of reactions will lead not to prostacyclin, but prostaglandin E2, but only in certain cellular subtypes where those enzymes are expressed. That will lead to PGE2 versus PGI2, right? So PGE2, pro inflammatory, PGE2 is pro-inflammatory, whereas prostaglandin 2 is anti-inflammatory, see? So this is the linkage between the different cyclooxygenases in the course of abdominal aortic aneurysms, and not only that, atherosclerosis. I'm going to stop here because I only have about a minute left, so I'm not going to let this one go over. I know the last two did. This is Dr. Dan Guerrero from Authentic uh, biochemistry podcast on a very late afternoon on the sixth day of June 2023. Once again, the anniversary of D Day, which happened in 1944. Bye for now.